Welcome to the Horror Babble Originals podcast. The Ghoul of May Hall, a Karnaki the Ghostfinder story, by Ian Gordon, based on characters created by William Hope Hodgson. It should come as no surprise, gentlemen, said Karnaki, taking his customary seat by the mantelpiece, that I have a compelling tale to tell. Our host lit his pipe, whilst the rest of us, Arkwright, Jessop, Taylor, and I, gathered round him. I've been north again, he continued, gesturing northwest with a lazy thumb, to May Hall, a country house in the West Pennines. It all began with a wire from the man of the house, John May, calling for a meeting at my earliest convenience, regarding a mysterious prowler spotted roaming the grounds of the hall after dark. I'd have rejected May's request, referring him to the police in the process, if it hadn't been for his use of a certain curious word, ghoul. It's a striking word, isn't it, chaps? Beckford's forays into the folklore of ancient Arabia continue to haunt us, it would seem. With visions of ravenous beasts plaguing my every step, I made my way up to the sprawling estate and met with May by the northeast gateway lodge. Dark clouds conspired as I shook his hand, and, as we traversed the grounds by means of horse-drawn carriage, hailstones the size of cricket balls fell from the sky. It's an attractive house, chaps, some three stories, red brick, justly typical of what you might expect of an English country house. But, as we approached, I happened to notice that one of the tall casement windows occupying the ground floor of the hall's west wing was boarded up, marring its exterior beauty. This, as you might imagine, aroused my curiosity somewhat. We waited for the worst of the weather to pass before climbing from the wagon. Thereafter, we entered the hall proper through its southeast entrance. Situated in the quiet splendor of the hall, I took a moment to address the condition of the boarded-up window. In response to which, May remarked that his nocturnal visitor, or ghoul, had that very morning at a little after two a.m. tossed a large stone at the glass, in what May presumed was a failed attempt to gain access to the property. May's teenage son, William, whose quarters were located directly above the drawing-room to which the shattered window belonged, was roused by the din. He rushed to the bedroom window, flung it open, and shrieked like a banshee as he beheld the creature below, gawking at the aperture it had so crudely created. Interestingly, William's scream seemed to startle the thing, and off it fled into the murky night. The groundskeeper, Armstrong, with assistance from May and his fearful son, saw to the detritus, and boarded up the window, fearing the ghoul's return. Fortunately, the thing hadn't returned. As May concluded his account, Mrs. May, accompanied by young William and the housekeeper, Miss Fletcher, joined the two of us in the entrance hall. I was introduced to all three, after which Miss Fletcher disappeared into the depths of the house— in order to fetch tea and biscuits. With the drawing-room out of bounds for the time being, we repaired to the library. I must admit, chaps, 
If I hadn't been there on business, I'd have been up to my ears in May's impressive collection of Renaissance literature. Miss Fletcher reappeared shortly after, and, caps in hand, we entered into conversation. Tell me how all this began, I invited. It started a few weeks ago, said May in a firm voice. William was tracking deer in the northwest woods, the old jewels, we call them, when he caught the scent of something foul in the air. Tell the man, William. And so the youngster, stiltedly, proceeded to elaborate describing both its approximate location in the old jewels, and the horrible stench that appeared to be emanating from an inconspicuous spot surrounded by dense ferns. The following morning, said May, picking up where his son left off, the two of us returned to the spot in question, only to discover a sizable hole in the ground from which that damnable odour was issuing forth, polluting the very air about us. "'A badger set, perchance?' I ventured. "'Not quite,' May returned. "'This was the result of something tunnelling its way out of the earth, not into it.' "'And that, chaps, was why May had referred to the thing he would later witness first-hand, as a ghoul. He believed that this thing had risen from the ground to feast upon him and his family. Why, I hear you ask, because— Several members of May's staff had recently disappeared. The head gardener, McCulloch, had been the first to vanish, last seen mowing the lawns to the west of the house. The housemaid, Dobson, was next to go, disappearing after a stroll in the walled garden to the south of the house. And the hall-boy, Thompson, had never returned from an errand he'd been assigned in a neighbouring village. But what was especially curious to me at this interval— was that these disappearances had occurred prior to the discovery of the hole in the old jewels. It seemed to me that May, having made not a jot of progress with the police regarding this spate of disappearances, had, out of desperation, turned to the supernatural for an explanation. Nevertheless, I'd made the journey, and was quite willing to humour the men of the house for the nonce. When was the prowler first witnessed? I asked. Two nights after we discovered the hole,' May answered. Armstrong had been doing his rounds by the stables, just north of the house, when he saw a figure, quite clandestinely, slip into the bushes that border the stables to the west. "'Did he get a good look at the figure?' I inquired. "'Not really,' May said. "'But he caught a whiff of it. A terrible, pungent odour, was how he described it.' the foul stench of death, rather like that which William happened across in the woods. The second sighting of the ghoul, according to Mrs. May, was by the South Pond, just after sunset. She had been taking her after-dinner stroll, as was her custom, enjoying the last vestiges of daylight hovering above her like the fingers of phantoms, when she too caught an odour on the cool spring air. Turning to meet its source— she saw a hunched figure. A leper was her first thought, edging towards her along the water's edge. She described it as being almost quadrupedal in nature, much like an ape, sniffing the air as it went. At a troubling distance of approximately thirty feet, she'd seen all her startled eyes permitted her to see. She emitted an almighty screech, which resulted in the thing turning and fleeing. Now, 
It may have occurred to you at this point, chaps, that this would-be ghoul of ours was of a nervous disposition. It hid from the groundskeeper, fled from Mrs. May, and bolted too when confronted by William at his bedroom window. What sort of creature, if creature it was, was I up against? If this timid thing had indeed been responsible for the mysterious disappearances of three staff members, how had it managed to pluck up the courage to overwhelm them? In any case, I listened to the rest of the yarn as May spun it, and took note of two further sightings of the prowler, in which the mysterious figure that sometimes walked and other times crawled fled at the first sign of detection. Naturally, my first objective was to make a sweep of the house in order to determine its weaknesses. This I insisted I conduct alone. If the ghoul was attempting to gain access to the property for some reason, I felt it prudent to ensure all potential points of ingress were taken care of. As it was, the house was sufficiently secure, suffering only from the sheer quantity of tall casement windows which were, as had already been clearly demonstrated, vulnerable to projectiles. The first indication that something was amiss within the house, as opposed to without, was observed in a tour of the cellars. The cellars of May Hall are expansive, a veritable warren of interconnected chambers, many of which are reserved exclusively for the storage of foodstuffs and wine. One of these chambers, ostensibly, belonged to the housekeeper, Miss Fletcher. There were other private quarters down there, too, including the rooms of the missing housemaid, Dobson, and the hall-boy, Thompson, but there was nothing singular about those spaces. What was remarkable about Fletcher's space, however, was a rather noxious odour, arising, apparently, from a vast cauldron of sorts in a corner of the chamber. Fletcher, a short, middle-aged woman with round, crimson cheeks, insisted that the contents of the pot comprised a number of unpopular ingredients, malodorous cheeses that were the chief elements of a stew she casually referred to as layman's tonic. Fletcher, who was on hand to answer my questions, invited me to taste the concoction, <laughs> an invitation I politely declined, whilst doing my utmost to prevent my brow from furrowing in its presence. But as I said, chaps, there was something amiss down there. I felt quite strongly that the pungent potion the diminutive housekeeper was in the act of producing down there had another purpose, to disguise another smell, perchance. Fletcher's chamber, too, was the only room in the cellars in which I observed a number of items not quite befitting an honest member of staff. Though these oddities were few, and unlikely to be the subject of May scrutiny, they did not escape my attention. Unusual books such as Don L'Ombre and the Sorcerella, preserved insects and macabre osteological specimens, queer jars and frightful waxen masks— these are just the things that come to mind when looking back, you see. And there was something in Miss Fletcher's very manner that was impossible to ignore. A furtive vigilance. Wherever I wandered in that chamber of hers, I felt her tiny eyes at my back, paying close attention to my every move. I returned to the comfort of the library, where I reconvened with May. Immediately he inquired as to my progress— a look of hopefulness clinging to his striking features. 
Pushing my concerns regarding the housekeeper aside for the present, I informed the man of the house that nothing appeared to be amiss, and apprised him of my intentions for the forthcoming night. "'If the thing is wont to return this evening,' I said, "'then I should be prepared. If it is indeed a ghoul, as you say, then it will be necessary for me to be armed with the means to take it into custody, so to speak.' May seemed to shrink at my mention of apprehending the thing, in response to which I reassured him that I was capable of doing so alone, and would, in fact, prefer to do it that way. You see, chaps, if we were indeed in the midst of a creature that had very recently spawned from the cold earth of the old jewels, then I felt it pertinent to capture it in order to determine its objective. Of course, I had no intention of attempting to enter into a dialogue with the thing. I wanted to study its behaviour in a controlled environment, a space that would later be provided courtesy of May's groundskeeper, Armstrong. Meanwhile, I was shown to guest quarters in the East Wing, a grand suite befitting an English country house, in which I withdrew from my trusty satchel a number of items, namely a ceiling star, five hundred grams of beguiling powder, and, for luck, a pristine greenstone for my trouser pocket. You might not be familiar with this particular combination of elements, Arkwright, so pay close attention when I get to the details. At around five p.m., I joined May and his family in the dining-room. We ate well, and, sparing May the details of my plan, I asked if he could arrange a space for me in the stables. My strategy was to lure the would-be ghoul into the stables through use of the beguiling powder, and to prevent its escape by affixing the ceiling star to one of the stable doors. May summoned Armstrong, who in turn immediately saw to my request and out I went, insisting that May and his family remain indoors. When I arrived at the stables, the last light of day was dancing overhead. Armstrong had relocated several horses, leaving a number of empty stables for my purpose. So here's the trick, Arkwright. First, I affixed the ceiling star to the stable door, ensuring the black point was directed to the ground. Second, I sprinkled a fine line of beguiling powder between the stable door and the north wall of the house, a distance of some forty feet or so, and spoke aloud all three stanzas of the Gollio treatment, this to ensure that the prowler would follow the trail should it near the boundary of the house. And third, withdrawing the greenstone from my pocket, I spoke aloud the first line of the Mandrake chant, and returned the item to my pocket in quick succession. This combination of elements ensures the following—protection for oneself, the complete attention of the alien force, and an effective means of containment, having lured set force. "'Got everything you need, sir?' queried Armstrong, full of that same hopefulness May had displayed earlier. "'I'm all set,' I reassured the aging character, and watched as he cautiously returned to the house, mindful of the gathering darkness. Pleased with my preparations, I took it upon myself to walk the perimeter of the house, on the lookout for that which I sought. Passing close by the rear of the property, I caught once again a whiff of that terrible concoction being stewed in that dreadful pot in Miss Fletcher's chamber. Drawn towards it inexplicably, I followed it, 
until I was standing by the sunken window that served the housekeeper's chamber. The misted window was ajar, hence the appalling odour's ability to assault the clean evening air. Stealthily, I crept up to the glass, and peered in through the crack. Fletcher was standing over the cauldron, stirring and muttering. I couldn't catch the words whispered there, but it somehow confirmed that my earlier misgivings had been well placed. This was no ordinary housekeeper. Was it possible that whatever she was brewing down there was attracting the would-be ghoul? I completed my circuit of the house, and returned to the stables. Whatever the housekeeper was up to, I'd deal with it in due course. I must have waited there with my back to the ceiling star for well over an hour, before I caught another whiff on the night air, and this time its source wasn't Fletcher's repulsive cooking. From where I stood by the stables, I had a clear, if a little gloomy, view of the lawns to the east of the hall. A light breeze was blowing from the east, which was fortunate, as I was able to stay downwind of the thing. However, it was the very same wind that brought forth that detestable stench. I fixed my gaze upon the lawns in search of movement. Before long, I observed a crooked shape, the general outline of a man, but, just as Mrs. Mayer described, a creature so hunched that it appeared to walk on its knuckles. The scent of that thing was appalling, chaps. The smell of mould and rot— the unmistakable odour of death. Aware of my need to remain hidden, I ducked into the adjacent stable, and watched furtively as the thing approached the house. Just as I hoped, the creature picked up the scent of the beguiling powder, and was soon following the trail in the direction of the stables. Like a hound, the ghoul followed that white line, completely oblivious of all else, the powder was proving to be effective. Moments later, and the creature had entered the stable next to me. I could hear it in there, moving back and forth, sniffing the air, mindlessly searching for the scrumptious fruit that beguiling powder could promise, but never provide. Without hesitation, I rushed from my hiding place, and pushed the stable door closed, trapping the creature inside, held in place by the ceiling star. So contained, the ghoul ceased its pacing and sniffing, and fell silent within. Returning to the house, I met with May in the library once more, and advised him of the creature's capture. Immediately, the man of the house went for his gun, an action I firmly remonstrated. I suggested that there might be a more effective means of getting rid of the foul creature, a means May couldn't have possibly imagined and to achieve it, another trap would be required, a trap designed to capture an altogether different kind of monster. The ghoul is the key, I said. There's a very good reason it keeps coming back here night after night. We need to use its keen senses to our advantage. The real trouble you're facing lives here within these walls. I imagine it's the very thing responsible for your missing staff members. But— what? May begged. To answer that question, we'll need to employ the extraordinary nose 
of our friend in the stables, I said. And I wasn't joking, chaps. Under the spell of the beguiling powder, subdued by the ceiling star, I felt it a trivial matter to take charge of the creature, in order that it might lead us to its prize. Off we went, May and I, to command the ghoul. I must admit, I felt a little trepidation as I opened that door. But, much to my relief, the thing remained hunched and immobile in the middle of the small stable. It was then that May and I finally got a proper look at the being in our midst. What a sight, chaps! In most respects it resembled a man, in possession of the requisite limbs and digits, eyes and mouth, ears and nose. But every element was damaged, decaying. The skin about those limbs and digits was calloused and scabrous, oozing a strange jelly-like substance at intervals. The eyes were deep hollows, from which only one yellowed orb glared back. The mouth was devoid of lips, little more than a hole torn into the face, incapable of hiding the several blackened teeth that remained beneath. The ears were bulbous and green, with a creeping algae beyond description. And the nose, that aquiline nose betrayed by charred, peeling flesh. To see that thing up close was to heighten the dreadful fetter it emanated. May and I were forced to cover our noses. Can you imagine what it was like? But, in spite of the horror we felt, the thing itself was really quite harmless. Even under the influence of the beguiling powder, the creature retreated into a corner of the stable as we approached, quietly whimpering with the aid of vocal cords incapable of articulate speech. Looking the creature square in its remaining eye, I withdrew the greenstone from my trouser pocket, and spoke aloud the second line of the mandrake chant. You know, Jessop, the part concerned with domination? Instantly, the ghoul stepped forward, straightening its arched back somewhat. Thanks to that odd assembly of arcane expressions, the thing would no longer consider anybody in its presence a threat, at least for the moment. Wincing at both the sight and smell of the thing, I spoke to the creature directly. Let us go, I commanded, confident that the simple being would continue to pursue its original goal. Moments later, the ghoul passed in front of me, and resumed its hound-like walk in the direction of the house. You should have seen the look on John May's face, chaps. Positively bemused he was, as— by the light of a partially obscured moon, we followed the strange creature across the yard separating the stables from the hall, and followed the perimeter of the building towards its southeast entrance. Like a dog left out in the rain, the ghoul approached the grand double doors, and pawed at the panels, its cracked and serrated fingernails generating small strips of would-be kindling. May was kind enough to open the door for the creature, all the while wincing in its presence, that look of befuddlement pasted across his face unshakable. Into the entrance hall we walked, trailing the ghoul as we went. I heard a stifled scream on behalf of Mrs. May, who was watching from the top of the grand stairs with young William. In silence we followed our apathetic guide, 
as it veered towards the descending staircase, leading to the cellars below. Down we went, the three of us, the creature on all fours, its blackened nose sniffing the cold stone steps. Myself, the influential greenstone clutched firmly in my right hand, and May, the mystified man of the house, strolling in the lee of the supernatural. Can you picture it, chaps? Soon enough, we came upon the expected chamber, Miss Fletcher's quarters, the room from which, even in the presence of the foul-smelling ghoul, that noxious stink was emanating from a perpetually broiling cauldron. But was it emanating from that cauldron? The answer, chaps, is that the boiling pot had indeed a part to play in the festering stench down there, but it wasn't what drew the attention of our ghastly guide. Miss Fletcher watched as the three of us entered her chamber. She was somewhat subdued in the presence of Mr. May, but seemed altogether unperturbed by the advent of the creature. I sensed that furtive vigilance again. Her demeanour was that of one who has something to hide, of one who is about to be exposed to something other than what they appear to be on the surface. And it was the ghoul, the crawling, detestable thing from the deepest depths of the earth, that would unmask her. The ghoul, relentless, moved past the festering cauldron, and crept, hound-like, across the cold stone floor towards an alcove in the northwest corner of the chamber. Into the alcove it disappeared, and, moments later, scraping sounds were heard. I rushed over, and saw, under the illumination afforded by a kerosene lantern just outside the alcove, that the creature had discovered a trap-door. Again, my nostrils were assaulted by a combination of appalling odours, the steaming cauldron, the decaying ghoul, and whatever greater ghastliness lay beneath that trap-door. But I have to tell you, chaps, I already had it figured out. Still clutching the greenstone, I spoke to the ghoul once again. Rest, I commanded, and the creature immediately ceased its scratching at the wooden trap-door. I turned, addressing May, Fletcher, and Mrs. May, who had appeared in the chamber's doorway. It is my unfortunate duty, I began, to inform you of Miss Fletcher's treachery. Your housekeeper is a necromancer. Beneath that trap-door back there, you'll find the bodies of your missing staff. It's a lie, Miss Fletcher yelled, feigning shock, and hurling herself at the feet of John May. Hey. Necromancer? Mrs. May tendered, her voice shrill. A witch, I reiterated, studying the mystified members of the May household intently. After a moment, May finally spoke. What? What do we do now? You contact the authorities, and keep her locked up until they come to retrieve her. But it's a lie, Miss Fletcher yelled again. But after she did so, I saw that her lips were still moving. She was muttering an incantation, an incantation I instinctively felt was directed towards the ghoul. And, in response to her silent charm, the creature to my rear emerged from the alcove, and stood upright once again, sniffing the air, seeking its prey. "'John!' 
I yelled. Take Mary and get away from here. But before May could react, the ghoul was sprinting across the chamber, directly towards him. I gripped the greenstone tightly, determined to bring the ghoul back under my command. But it was no use. The necromancer was far too powerful for my meagre recitations. May braced himself as the ghoul approached at speed. Mrs. May let out a devastating scream. Miss Fletcher, the witch, rose to her feet, a malevolent grin dividing her face from ear to ear. But her grin was premature. The ghoul leaped not at May, but at her. In a matter of seconds, the creature was at her throat, biting and tearing, chewing and drinking, the flesh and blood of the necromancer little more than a crimson jelly, staining the ghoul's pitiful hands and face. John May almost fainted. Mary May had backed up against the chamber door, her face white as a sheet. The witch's lungs gave out one last puff of air before she fell limp in the arms of the ghoul, dead. Sated and seemingly liberated, the strange creature leaped over the body of Miss Fletcher and bolted. As you can imagine, chaps, the three of us, May, his wife, and I, were immobile for quite some time before the reality of what had occurred before our very eyes began to register in our minds. Shortly afterwards, the police were called, and everybody in the house was subjected to quite the interrogation. The bodies of the missing, McCulloch, Dobson, and Thompson, were indeed found beneath the trapdoor in Miss Fletcher's chamber, and although we were spared sight of the poor creatures, I later learned that the three of them had been drained of blood and stripped of their vital organs, all of which, the evidence suggested, had been added to the queer concoction the necromancer was brewing in that giant putrid pot. Layman's tonic, indeed! What her ultimate goal was, I haven't been able to ascertain. May described her as the perfect housekeeper. Courteous, punctual, he's having a very difficult time reconciling the unassuming, virtuous housekeeper with the malevolent witch he'd confronted in her ghastly subterranean lair. And there you have it, chaps, all in a day's work. Karnacki knocked out his pipe marking the end of his yarn. "'And the ghoul?' I asked. "'What became of it?' "'Haven't a clue, Dodgson. I know that the thing hasn't been seen since. It was attracted to the bodies, you see. The only evidence that it was ever there at all is that putrid burrow by the ferns in the old jewels. May tells me they're having it fenced off.' "'An odd type of creature, don't you think?' proffered Jessop. I said so from the very beginning. A fearful thing it was. But in the end it saved the dead, did it not? Arkwright ventured. I suppose it did. It simply remains for me to say that that old adage is as true today as it ever was. One should never judge a book by its cover. Karnacki stood up. We rose in kind. Out you go, said our host genially and we went out onto the embankment, sniffing the air like hounds. <laughs>